0: Welcome to NSI Live, the National Security Institute's podcast home for NSI's public events, limited series podcasts, and breaking news podcasts. To learn more about NSI and register for upcoming events, visit nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. Also, be sure to follow us on Twitter at Mason Now, on with the show. Today we have Jody Herman, former Staff Director of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, Jamil Jaffer, NSI Founder and Executive Director, and former Chief Counsel and Senior Advisor to the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Our special guest... Bishop Garrison, NSI Visiting Fellow and Director of National Security Outreach at Human Rights First. Myself, Lester Munson, NSI Senior Fellow and the former Staff Director of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. And for the first time, we have a live audience. Thank you for joining us and be sure to send in your questions for the end of the show question and answer period. First, it's the day before Election Day and we're going to talk about the campaigns and records of the two candidates, President Donald Trump and former Vice President Joe Biden, the challenges they will face over the next four years. And we will take questions from our live audience. Jody, let's start with you. What is Joe Biden saying about how he will conduct foreign policy over the next four years, should he in fact be president of the United States?
1: Okay, so I think if Biden wins, aside from some really specific policy changes, like rejoining the Paris Climate Agreement or building back an Iran nuclear agreement, changes to asylum and refugee policy, I think we'll have a real paradigm shift from America first foreign policy to a policy that relies on American global leadership. And I have kind of like three things that I would just point out in, in this space. One is a focus on alliances and being a reliable ally. So American alliances are key to our collective security but also to American security. And while going, a, going it alone uh, sounds strong, it actually puts us at greater risk, right? We're feeling temperatures rise globally, seeing precocious movements by Putin in Syria, Libya, Ukraine, Belarus, quoting uh, Erdogan in Turkey, we're seeing similarly precocious efforts by, uh, by Xi and the CCP, well, literally everywhere around the globe. And I think we need to do more plain chess and we do that by strengthening our security and diplomatic alliances. So that's kind of the first point. The second uh, key point I would say is, I would expect something of a pivot from a defense-centered foreign policy to a Biden policy that recognizes investing in diplomacy pays peace dividends, right? So our current defense budget is is pretty large, like $700 billion annually, while our diplomacy and foreign assistance spending is about $66 billion annually. That doesn't necessarily mean large defense cuts, but it does mean prioritizing investing in diplomatic uh, and assistance relationships that pay dividends in resolving conflicts while also ensuring opportunities for Americans. And that means things like investing in our foreign and civil service personnel as our front line of defense. It means using our bilateral, multilateral diplomacy and coalition building as a mechanism to deter conflict and, and to be really out front with those relationships as, as, as the mandate for, for our work, right? So things like COVID and climate change and refugee populations, declines in you know, uh, democracy and a third of authoritarianism. These aren't things that require troops and weapons. These are things that require people and relationships uh, to solve. So that's two. And then the third one is really just this idea that I think Biden will lead by example, um, ensuring that the example that we, that we set at home reflects the values that we want to see abroad. I don't think I need to articulate that any more than that. Those are the three kind of I would call paradigm shifts, I think in a Biden foreign policy
0: all right jamil let 's get uh, let 's get your take, which I assume will be somewhat different on the national security approach that Joe Biden is offering America in this campaign well us i 'm not sure it 's
2: going to be different. I just think it's going to be let 's talk about the implications of that are, right which is to say uh, what Jody just laid out is that Joe Biden will return to the obama administration 's foreign policy, which was a resounding failure so look, that's great. If we want to go back to the eight years of train wreck uh, for American alliances and American relationships around the globe that was the Obama foreign policy, that's good. You know, that's okay. We can do that. Uh, But I don't think the American people want that. I think the American people recognize that our uh, failure to act decisively in Syria was a mistake. I think the American people realize that our uh, giving up of Crimea to Russia was a mistake. I think the American people realize that us allowing China to build – islands in the South China Sea, militarized islands in the South China Sea, was a mistake. And, and to allow them to steal billions and trillions of dollars of American intellectual property was an error. Um, and so, you know, look, I'm not going to defend the Trump administration's foreign policy. Um, I think there are a lot of huge issues with that. And I do think it's important, as Jody says, to rebuild our alliances and to do more diplomacy. Uh, but I don't think the answer is go back to America on its back foot. Uh, backpedaling for the world, not backing our allies, um, and frankly talk about ending all endless wars and withdrawing back home. In you know, a lot of ways, actually, that that has been a consistent theme of the Obama administration, is a consistent theme of the Trump administration. And I I worry it'll actually be a consistent theme of a Biden administration. And so I worry when it comes to American foreign policy and national security, neither of the candidates uh up for election tomorrow is going to do what we need, which is America to actually lean forward and lead in the world and take the mantle of leadership on that we've always had or had for at least the last, you know, 20, 30 years um, and take responsibility for that.
0: All right, uh, Bishop, first of all, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you join us. Thank you for having me. I'm honored to be here. So we're going to we're going to give you a, a nice fat pitch down the middle. Awesome. Uh, why don't like you that. offer us your critique of President Trump's approach to foreign policy over the past four years?
3: Well, I, I would say let's just uh, let's just speak plainly. It's It's been an abject failure. And uh, in part, a large a large portion of it is because we have become a much more global society uh, as, a, as a world and as a nation. We have been for a long time a leader of that global society. So for Trump to step in and say, you know, America first and put us on. A, a path of isolationism has been a step backwards for uh, the United States and for the world in general. When you see the way that we re- responded or a lack of response to COVID, when you see a lack of response to disinformation and misinformation from uh, from the Russia and from, uh, I should say, um, uh, in- international or, or foreign entities, uh, when you see that we don't have a, a clear plan for Afghanistan or for Iraq, or for many of the, or for Syria. We, we uh, completely left the Kurds uh, up a creek without a paddle when we uh, began pulling troops out, and then we reallocated uh, the resources that were there just to ensure that we were protecting oil fields that did not belong to us, which was a questions of, of, hum- of uh, international law and international norm violations to begin with. So um, there are a variety of things we can go to. We can go into China and talk about uh, this trade war that he's uh con- that he and the administration have continued to push that have cost real jobs and real businesses to Americans when you talk about uh, uh t- tariffs of uh in upwards of 500 billion dollars and to only have China uh retaliate through not buying american soybeans uh th- those are just uh, not subtle examples those are true 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 things that have damaged our relationships uh, here here at home and, a, and abroad, the way America is viewed, it has long been the the shining city at the top of that hill, and we have advocated that. We have stepped back from it. Just look at our uh, border. Look at the southern border and the way we have militarized policies that now have a direct impact on what happens to us domestically as well. And you're seeing uh, a lot of this type of rhetoric and a lot of these um, activities even now during the election cycle and we're seeing the militarization of police and we're seeing now the militarization of uh of uh election discourse it's absolutely crazy so th- a lot of these different issues a lot of what ails us right now can be directly connected back to the lack of leadership we've seen from this administration on a variety of uh, of these issues i mentioned
0: all right so um Occasionally, I draw the short straw here among this group, and I am I am now uh, going to offer a limited modified defense of some of the Trump administration's policies and actions uh, and say that, <clears throat> and go ahead and say that I believe there is some utility in the very disruptive approach that the president has taken to foreign policy. And we've seen some good effects from that, I think, the president's willingness to call out other members of uh, NATO for their lack of commitment to defense spending has actually had a salutary impact on the overall uh, status of the alliance. I think the president's willingness to pursue unconventional wisdom in the Middle East has led to the current situation where Israel is making uh, peace agreements and other diplomatic agreements with its Sunni Arab neighbors. I don't think that would have happened without this disruptive approach uh, from, the, from the current president. I also think uh, the current president's been willing to pivot Uh, On the issue of the US relationship with China, which we're going to discuss more in depth here shortly. But I think unlike virtually all of his predecessors in recent memory, going back really to Jimmy Carter, he's been willing to take a tougher approach to China. Now, frankly, it's been uh, hit or miss in some cases on the overall Trump approach to China. Some, have, some things have worked, other things have not worked. But he's been willing to go in a different direction. I think there's been some utility in that. We've learned a lot about the U.S. role in the world. And whoever's the next president, whether it's Trump again for another four years or President Biden, can kind of see where maybe some of our, our old approaches and there is a conventional wisdom that attaches to a lot of U.S. foreign policy decisions was just plain wrong. And we can, we can learn some things from these interesting positions the president has taken and maybe push our country in a better direction. Now, frankly, that means President Trump is going to have to be willing to abandon the role of disruptor for the next four years and, and double down on his good policies and maybe abandon some of the bad ones. And it's going to depend on whether a President Biden could actually acknowledge that in some cases, President Trump might have been right about a couple of things and be willing to keep following those policies. And I'm Uh, and and Bishop, I take your point on isolationism very seriously. I think it's a good one. I worry similarly that Democrats have a strain of isolationism in their approach. I don't think it's quite as bad as what the Republicans have right now, but I do think it's of concern. And I would, if Joe Biden does win, I'd want to make sure we're looking very closely at where the far left is, where the so-called progressives want to take us on certain policy issues. Because frankly, I think they're at oh as of concern as uh, some of the things we see on the far right. Okay, uh, Jamil, go ahead. Well, and, and let I mean, it, I think it's worth saying that a that a, a weak internationalist
2: foreign policy, okay, is also uh, as bad as being in isolation or it can be as bad as being in isolation. So, you know, say you're gonna do something and then not doing it, right? And being viewed as, as um, inveterate, uh, I think is a huge problem, right? And we've done that before. We've done that in recent memory. Um, and and I think that's a huge problem. I think Jody had a had a response.
1: Yeah, look, I just have like a, like a quick rejoinder to you, Jamil, which is, you know, I think that it's a campaign talking point to say that this is Obama two point and that this won't be Joe Biden's administration right so i know people have made fun of the build back better as like a as a kind of a corny statement but i do actually think it's true right like i think it's taking a look at obama it's taking a look at where we're at right now internationally and thinking about what we have to do that comes next and i think that joe biden remember this was somebody who led the Senate Foreign Relations Committee for many years, I think he understands this space better. I think he understands the importance, not just of relationships internationally, but of having a strong relationship between the administration and Congress. And if somebody could solve that issue and improve that relationship, that would actually go a really long way in terms of supporting American national security.
0: Bishop.
3: Yeah, if I could quickly, I I want to Kind of uh, go back to some things that uh, that Les mentioned on the, the NATO two percent piece. Uh, Trump has been uh, somewhat aggressive, at least in his rhetoric about it. But let's let's not be mistaken that both Presidents Bush and Obama pushed hard for the uh, to ensure our NATO allies reach their the two percent mark. Uh, in, in support of uh, military efforts there, we still remain the only uh, Article Five uh, uh, country under NATO, and we've had many opportunities to to speak more in, uh, to our allies and go to bat for them. But we've been pushing this whole idea that uh, it's it somehow if they're not meeting their two percent mark, that we potentially may not support them. That's insane. Um, It also remains to be seen on some of his diplomatic efforts as well. He pushed hard and tried on multiple occasions, and I think to somewhat to Jamil's point, on uh, North Korea, and said that, you know, I'm going to bring them to the table. We're going to see a a denuclearized North Korea, denuclearized Peninsula. None of that. That's all evaporated. And and we don't even talk about it anymore because nothing ever happened under it. Uh, I worry that uh, uh, parts of uh, his policy efforts in the Middle East are going to be the same way. So uh, I just wanted to add that.
2: Well, look, I I think Bishop's right uh, to to point out some of the concerns. North Korea is a great example, right? I mean, there the president went in, thought that his personal relationship that he could build with Kim Jong-un would would get past the very real issues, and the fact is it couldn't and it didn't i actually credit the trump administration for not having gone down the road of trying to do a poor deal with north korea the same way that the obama administration needing to get a foreign policy win did on iran
1: now, i'm not yeah. gonna refight the iran i know you, I know. you gotta bring I, it back to iran I, every well, single time right you it was like a huge failure Jamil, oh, Jamil, yeah, we will on.
0: always have iran We'll we'll yes, yeah, we'll but we are have.
1: clearly in a much, much better place now, Jamil, right? So I, Iran has actually started to re-enrich, and we don't have an agreement to hold them to account. That is absolutely. clearly a much better place to be. I,
0: absolutely. Listen, well, I it does have fewer resources to... Uh, Engage in its malign activities than it did a couple of exactly. years ago. Exactly.
2: You notice. You notice. There's a lot less. There's a lot less fomenting going on around the region as they start to feel pressure internally, right? And look, giving up the gold, the the gold standard, right? Allowing Iran to, mes- to enrich domestically is exactly why we're here. They're re-enriching because the Obama administration let them have an enrichment capability that they should never have had and should not be should not have kept under that deal. And by giving them up millions and millions of dollars, right, to help work on on further enrichment, advanced enrichment, ballistic missiles and the like. And frankly, walking back our effort on ballistic missile efforts that have been a long-standing position of the U.S. You government. know
1: that I was not the biggest fan of the JCPOA as it was written. But once it was done, it was done. And we, hadn't a, we had a deal that at least in part held the Iranians accountable, which is a lot more than what we have right now.
0: now we Bishop, Bishop, Bishop now we welcome, welcome to an argument we've been having for about eight years. <laughs> so I see. So I
3: see. All, yeah, all, I, can, I mean, I just, uh, you know, well, I, I just say I completely agree with Jody on this. Like it, that, That's fine and great to uh, to lambast it and say that it was a terrible... Th- so what's the alternative? What else, are you, what else do you have to, to hold them accountable on? You don't have anything. All, right.
0: All, so right. All right, I, I, Jamil, Jamil, I'm I'm taking moderator's privilege. We are, we are going to move on uh, to the <laughs> second phase of uh, this live podcast, and we're going to go a little deeper on what is surely going to be <clears throat> the United States' biggest long-term challenge over the next four years, the rise of China. Uh, We've had, as I mentioned earlier, we've had a pivot from decades of constructive dialogue and cooperation with China to a new paradigm of challenge and confrontation. Bishop, what's your assessment of China as a possible peer competitor to the United States, and how much will our next president be confronted with this issue in the near future?
3: Well, we're already looking at China as the the world's largest economy per uh, GDP at somewhere I think it's around 25 or 26 trillion now. Uh, at this point. So China is a a beast or bear that's just not going to go away. So you have to determine how you're going to make them a rational actor in this. Uh, When we talk about uh, uh, the competition levels, you're speaking on technology, they're becoming a leader in green tech while we're taking a step back, uh, looking for fossil fuels and to deregulate a lot of uh, uh, the, the environmental protections we had in place that would help us move forward into uh, rene- clean renewable energy. Uh, when you talk about uh, their military, they're uh, they're continuing to build, but they're also looking at uh, alternatives in terms of how they engage us through cyber activity, through misinformation. What are we doing right now to prepare for that next fight? Because it's you can't uh, have a bunch of carriers and uh, and jets and fighter jets to go after uh, hackers. So what are we doing right now uh, to to combat that? And what are we doing in terms of uh, building out any type of infrastructure within uh, the NSC or otherwise to help us fight against misinformation and disinformation? The president goes on Twitter and says it's all fake news and none of it exists. Uh, how are we holding these countries accountable? I've already talked about the uh, uh, the economic piece and then diplomacy again to not to you know beat a dead horse, but we've become an isolationist country right now. We're Uh, It's stepping back from a lot of our uh, partnerships and allyships. The only way that we're going to be successful in engaging China and making them the rational actor we need them to be is through those partnerships. It's going to be critical to try to come together as a a world and hold them accountable economically because you're continuing to look at the human rights violations they have with the the Uyghur, uh, Muslim population. Uh, they, They have basically, as far as we can tell, concentration camps. What are we doing right now to help fight against these human rights violations and uh, these other issues, while attempting to maintain some level of stability in area? I'm still worried about the South China Sea and what they may uh, do to continue to uh, try to put their flag and a footprint in that area. Uh, so there are a variety of issues that we need to tackle. Quite frankly, all at once, and the path forward to doing that is really. Uh, through our uh, through our partnerships and ensuring it, it makes this entire conversation about what the uh, what America's role is in the global community all the more important. At one point, we were the leaders, so we could kind of uh, help direct and shape the conversation as we move back into uh, global politics uh, in a new norm. For instance is that still going to be the case? How are we going to to re, have the proper uh, self-reflection and evaluation moving forward on this, particularly if it remains a Trump administration?
0: All right. Uh, before I go to Jamil, let me remind our, our live audience here on the podcast, if you have a question, please put it in the little Q&A function at the bottom of your screen. We'd love uh, to hear from you. Jamil, How do you think uh, China is going to be challenging the next president in in the next four years? Look, I actually agree with every last word the bishop just said. I think Bishop is one
2: hundred percent right. Um, I think the I think the one place we may disagree is whether America can successfully achieve energy independence through purely looking at clean energy. I think that we've made a big step forward um, uh, domestically going forward on on obtaining uh, you know carbon uh, and oil resources from our own soil. I mean that's been a huge uh, you know um, uh, of huge importance to us in the international arena. Now all that being said. I think we have got to be prepared to challenge uh, China and be aggressive and and fight forward, whether we ought to do it through tariff and trade measures the way the current president has or some alternative method uh, that that Joe Biden might adopt. I'm I'm interested to see. I actually think we're going to see more consistency rather than less on the China front from uh, the new incoming administration, whether it's Donald Trump or Joe Biden. I'm in part because this is the one area where, frankly, Donald Trump and Nancy Pelosi might agree, right? For different reasons, right? I think that obviously a Biden administration and a a, a Pelosi led House uh, is focused on some of the labor issues at stake, some of the human rights issues at stake. Um, Although I will say the Trump administration has been dramatically more forward leaning on the Uyghurs issue than the prior administration was. And that's a good thing. And they ought to be. And I think Bishop is exactly right to call these things modern day concentration camps, modern day gulags. That is exactly what they are. You know, I I think, you know, Bishop, you and I talked about this on the podcast that we talked about systemic racism and this idea that the, that the Chinese government from the podium of the foreign ministry is so concerned about the plight of black Americans in the United States. I mean, it's, it's laughable, right? We know that that's simply a talking point for them and an overt influence opportunity for them to go, go ahead and try to undermine our own discussion here in the United States and gaslight our discussion in the United States. Um, but what worries me uh, is exactly what you're saying, is that we, we're, we're, we're not prepared to be as forwardly as we need to be and recognize them for the very real threat that we are, you know, part that they are. Part of the challenge is, you know, we as Americans, we tend to think in, you know, one week, one month, one year, five-year increments, maybe at the most, right? It makes us tremendously innovative and tremendously successful, but it also makes us subject to countries that like Russia and China much more so that have 30, 40, 100-year time horizons that look at us simply as a flash in the pan, and they are building for a long-term China victory, and we're missing the boat. And so I really think we need to get in the game fast. We need to look at things like core technologies, our dependence on them for rare earth metals, our dependence on them for semiconductors and the like is hugely problematic, right? And while I'm not saying we need to decouple, we certainly need to recognize the, the challenge we've seen in PP and pharmaceuticals for what they are in these other broader areas um, and really need to move forward aggressively. And frankly, Yes, I'll say it. As a Republican, I think we need more of an industrial policy when it comes to critical technologies.
3: Well, I, I, qu- uh, two quick things: we allowed for space for uh, the foreign minister to get up and say, "I can't breathe." We allowed for that space. That that's a part of the problem here. I, I agree. Uh, uh, second, uh, on, I, on the clean energy piece, I, I I don't necessarily disagree. I'm sure we disagree on, um, on the path on how to get to, uh, an independent clean energy solution for the United States. But I wasn't attempting to say that tomorrow we're going to flip on a switch in a Biden administration. You're going to have clean energy for all. Like this, this is a process. I think, uh, some of the, uh, developments we're seeing, like in California, for instance, uh, talking through by, uh, 2035, having, uh, all electrical vehicles. I think, I think that's a really robust, and I think, uh, yeah. Uh, you know, it's really aggressive, but I think it's a good idea. It's those types of things that are going to get us there. But also, I they thinking.
0: like to just turn off the electrical grid for a few hours <laughs> yeah. at a time. For what I uh, listen, and then and, lastly, can I just would- say,
3: Jamil's 100% right. China thinks in centuries while we're thinking in like five, 10-year yeah. increments.
0: Sorry, I'll shut up now.
1: Let's be clear. We're still going to be fracking in Pennsylvania, right?
0: Uh, we've been promised. Yes. We've been promised that he is not. Clean anti-crack.
1: every place else except for fracking in Pennsylvania.
0: Right. I mean, unless you see a Bernie Sanders-led Department
2: of Interior, you know, or Elizabeth Warren-led <laughs> le- the Department of Commerce. I mean, I was actually heartened to see the "quote-unquote" ban on senators uh, in the next cabinet because, frankly, you know, if there's not a ban on senators, I think you could very well see an Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders in, in place, and I, I think you would see, you know, a of bans on. Warren
0: Trump. Warren and Sanders are both come from states that have Republican governors, and. You know, which means they're Somebody should tell them which, that. Very, Somebody should yeah, tell them, it's, them that. It's a very it convenient fact uh, for would-be President Biden. All right, Jody, uh, what do you okay. think the U.S. can do under Joe Biden, or frankly, or Donald Trump, to actually make a difference in China on the issues of democracy and human
1: rights? Right. So I, I just want to echo something quickly that Jamil said, um, which I'm always hesitant to do, but I will which is that there really is actually a bipartisan consensus, at least on the diagnosis of the CCP as a strategic threat, right? We may vary in our, in our tactics, right? And to be clear, you know, China, I think everybody sees China as a grave threat to the principles of democracy and human rights, uh, both at home in China as well as abroad. What I think is interesting lately is that I'm not sure that they haven't overstepped Right, they've they've been lacking in subtlety, if you will. Like so China's literally waging a genocide against the Uyghur population in Western China. It's divested Tibetans of their homeland and prison Christians and other intellectual kind of quote unquote nonconformists and resorted to a cultural revolution style crackdown in Hong Kong. You know, like and that ability to take action means that they have strength, but it actually demonstrates their lack of internal stability. Right. So You know, Congress has actually been working with the administration here. Uh, I think that happened during the Trump administration. I think it will continue to happen in a Biden administration, right? So there's you know, sanctions and import restrictions and weapon sales to Taiwan. I think the difference is this, is that Congress has pushed um, the administration, although to be fair, Congress typically pushes administrations on these types of issues. I think the difference with a Biden administration is it'll be able to use its relationship and alliances to really hold China accountable in every forum, right? So in its other bilateral meetings, in its UN meetings, in multilateral fora, and that we'll be able to build a coalition to address the types of issues like the genocide against the Uyghurs, right? So it's not that we haven't encouraged other states at all, but it hasn't been a primary effort by this administration to take on that set of issues with China, partially because they had another set of issues uh, related to trade. But I, I think that will be a difference between this administration and the next administration. And I think um, the time is right. China's massively overstepped uh, in this area. And it's clear to even those countries that saw some appeal in China's authoritarian but economic you know, market model. And I think that, uh, that idea is actually less appealing now than it was two years ago.
0: So uh, one of the other areas, uh, and I'd be interested in uh, if anyone has a reaction to this, one of the other areas where uh, China has been very aggressive in, in opposing what are our values and interests abroad has been with its Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, it's a personal project of President Xi Jinping of, of his very nationalist administration. There's, China is spending upwards of $20 billion a year in developing countries in the Indo-Pacific and in Europe, uh, spending money on infrastructure. Uh, it's, it's usually not very good infrastructure, but it's high profile. These are turnkey projects, um, religious buildings, highways, sports arenas, hotels, big construction projects. It's a way for for China to spend some of its excess cash, frankly, but it's also an attempt to influence developing countries. And they've got programs in 50, 60, 70 countries. Uh, You see them all. I was in Mozambique about a year ago. You see it it all over Mozambique, which is a big, um, huge country, but also a uh, a coming uh, energy power. And China's just bought influence there through this Belt and Road Initiative. And frankly, I thought There was a huge opportunity for Republicans and Democrats to work together to refashion some of the tools that we have at state, at USAID, perhaps at the New Development Finance Corporation, to really meet this challenge that China is offering with its cheap and often corrupt money, that we could promote rule of law, real economic growth up from the bottom so that that all boats are lifted in a developing country instead of just uh, the few government officials who are willing to take some cash from uh, Beijing, and we've we've had some success on that. The Development Finance Corporation, the uh, the bill that created that, that was bipartisan. Trump supported it. Congressional Democrats supported it. It's, it's it's great, but we could do so much more. We should be transforming many of our programs. We should be transforming the way we deal with multilateral institutions. It's just something that hasn't quite happened. I, I kind of throw that out to the group. It'd be nice to know, Jody Bishop, if you think this is something that the Biden administration might be pursuing should Joe Biden win tomorrow.
1: I think, Les, I think we're, with regard to China, I think we we need to adopt an all-of-the-above strategy. Like, I don't think there's anything we shouldn't be doing in these spaces, you know, whether it's in the democracy, human rights space, or countering Chinese efforts to buy off, you know, other countries with cheap, you know, with cheap investments, right? So yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, I think there's interest and support for this uniformly across both parties in Congress and in the executive branch, right? Like if there is a moment of if there's a unity on any foreign policy issue right now, I, I think I think China's in, and I think you try it. all. It's just like when you're on the hill and you're trying to move legislation you you try every avenue and i think the same thing is true here you need to you need to select e which is all of the above
3: yeah just to i i completely agree and to add to that i mean a, well, part of it too is that we need to look at what the the state of our own diplomacy is to begin with the state department's a mess so uh we're going to have to take an opportunity if there is a Biden administration he would need to take he and his administration we need to take an opportunity to properly right size it to uh, assess and adjust to see where it's smart to place the resources to give us the best outcomes in terms of a new uh, a new strategy in uh, in dealing with china and and everything you said is true I mean particularly China is looking to um, place a permanent flag in a lot of these areas uh, Africa and particularly over critical minerals and those are huge in terms of our own uh, uh, national security infrastructure and how we build out. Uh, current and future technologies. So uh, there are certain aspects of this entire discussion uh, that we are not going to be able to avoid, that the Biden, that a Biden administration is going to have to take on uh, head first uh, directly and, quite frankly, to some degree aggressively. And I think uh, what Jody states is, is really important. But again, it goes back to having all of the proper uh, allyships, relationships Globally for us, we're going to have to rebuild a lot of relationships in order to be able to put uh, the proper pressure points uh, on China on a lot of
0: these different issues. Jamil, go
2: ahead. Yeah, no, I I agree 100% with with both Bishop and Jody. I mean, I think that uh, Bishop makes a really important point about about what's happening in Africa. And and you made that point too, Les, about Mozambique. You know, the Chinese have been long purchasing influence there. Um, I was in Djibouti as far back as 2011, and they had built the parliament building, the new parliament building there uh, for the Djiboutians. Um, And now they've got a military base uh, right next to ours um, in Djibouti. And so uh, that's obviously a hugely strategically valuable area. Um and, and the larger problem as 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 Bishop correctly lays it out is they're not just coming in here and investing in infrastructure to make the the situation better for for Africans or for any other parts of the world uh, that that they're they're becoming influential. And they're going in there to extract resources for themselves. And frankly, they're not even hiring local labor, they're bringing in Chinese labor to work these efforts. And so the idea somehow that this is a boon to the country, uh, it may help the elites in some of these countries, but it's really not. It's really an effort designed to help Chinese labor, designed to extract resources for China, and to buy influence and and you know, and we're doing nothing about it, right? And I and I agree completely with, Bar- with Bishop that we've got to rebuild our relationships to do it. But frankly, we've been absent for a long time. And for a long time, our allies have looked around and wondered, will the US be here for us if we're if if we're in trouble? And the answer has been for not four years, but for 12 years has been no. You're our allies, we won't be there for you. And that is part of the fundamental problem. And that is what we need to return to. And I hope that Joe Biden has a different policy than Barack Obama or or Donald Trump and that we are there for our allies when they call upon us.
0: Bishop, let me um, push you on on a question related to China. Uh, Something I I should have mentioned, one of the positives I I think of the Trump administration has been increased defense spending. If Joe Biden wins, I think we're likely to see a reduction in defense spending from where otherwise would have been if Trump had won. And, you know, there may be very good reasons for that, increased domestic programs. We have a budget deficit issue. But nevertheless, we would see a some something of a reduction in defense spending. How do you think China will react to that fact alone? And how does how does a Joe Biden kind of factor that into his approach to Beijing?
3: Well, first, I I think we will see a reduction in spending, but not just for uh, cutting spending sake or for deficit reduction. I think it's going to be an assessment of what programs we currently have in place and what is actually needed, and uh, we it'll be an, a, a an evaluation, an assessment, and an adjustment based on what we think the next fight uh, is going to be. I continue to argue that I think it's going to, and I think I'm not alone in this, that uh, kinetic activity on a a large scale, traditional force on force uh, operations is probably not something we're going to see uh, moving forward. We're going to see a lot of asymmetric fights. We're going to have uh, a, a lot of issues, as I mentioned before, with cybersecurity probably with resource allocation, too, uh, as climate change and climate security continues to be a huge issue. So I, I think, first off, you'll, you'll see that, that reassessment. In terms of what, how China responds, I mean, look, again, China's thinking in terms of, of centuries while the rest of the world thinks in years and, and at best maybe decades. Like they're going to, to think through smartly what uh, and, and quite frankly, look at what we're actually doing and make uh, adjustments of their own. I don't think you're going to see a bunch of carriers and, and jets and, and uh, other types of uh, traditional weapon systems coming out of China because of any reduction uh, that we may make. They, you know, you'll, what you probably will see is uh, their own reinvestments in a lot of uh, research and development on uh, a lot of different types of future technologies. But I, I'd, I would be surprised if we saw a, a major push uh, from a more traditional perspective on the, the types
0: of weapon systems we're talking about. Jody, you look like you want to jump in here.
1: Yeah, listen, I just want to remind people that like what, like a $3 trillion, right? Like a uh, uh, dead, I think um, was was the new number, which is like a pretty shocking thing. So we're going to have to do something uh, about spending. And Biden's actually been pretty articulate uh, uh, on this. Right. Like, you know, while he's pointed to the fact that defense defense spending is high. He's also said he's not looking to make, you know, large cuts to defense just for the purpose of making large cuts to defense. But that we need to prioritize within our budget, and that includes things, you know, as Bishop said, a variety of things, investment in emerging technologies, in unmanned capacity, in cyber, in IT, right? Let's be thoughtful about how we're using our dollars and how we're investing them. I do think at the same time, as I mentioned at the beginning of this conversation, we'll see a reinvestment in diplomacy as a tool, as a much, much cheaper tool uh than, than investing in defence. But I, I, I feel like it's a campaign talking point to say that um, you know, Biden's gonna cut, you know, billions out of the defence budget. Might there be some downsizing or maybe right sizing of the defense budget? Yeah, I, I think so, but I don't think it's as extraordinary as uh, you know the campaign ads would have you believe. And then I would just add to that, that I think there's probably some savings there in the defense budget. If you were to pull money away from, from that Southern border wall that came out of the defense budget, you might be able to pull some of that back and actually put it into real priorities.
0: They actually spend money on the wall, I can't. Um, uh, all right. But not We're only g- did
1: they spend it, they took it out of the defense budget.
3: They took it out of the defense budget. Yep. Yeah, you it can't, you can't make
0: budget. this stuff up. I mean, it, it's unbelievable. All right.
2: We're going to
1: yeah, take so our first, our first
0: uh, question from the audience. In the history of the Mighty Fault Lines podcast, mm-hmm. America's most beloved bipartisan foreign policy podcast, by the way. <laughs> we'll now take our first question That's from the audience, Stephen. by the way. Yeah. Well, it's uh, it's undeniably true. Uh, from Stephen Jackson. Um Turkey and Greece are currently engaged in worrisome activities in the Mediterranean that could result in a worst case scenario, military conflict. How will a Biden or Trump administration handle this situation and how should they handle it? Who wants to take that on? Jamil.
2: Well, I mean, a Trump administration is probably gonna do what they've done so far, which is, you know, not a whole lot. Right. I mean, you know, we've been, we've been trying to find some middle path in theory. The problem is right. Our relationship with Turkey is odd. Right at best, the president ha- seems to have some sort of a uh, odd uh, affection for uh, a uh, for Erdogan, who is who is not a friend of the United States. Um, Turkey, of course, is a NATO ally, but they've been buying Russian S 400s That's not good. Um, you know, Greece is it's got economic problems like there's no tomorrow. Um, they're starting to come out of them, but, but still has challenges. Um, you know, and we've we've historically tried to find a middle path here, but you know, like Armenian or Azerbaijan, by the way, uh, where we have, in theory, brokered a ceasefire, but, you know, we'll see how long that hot minute that lasts, um, you know, um, we're not, again, we're not using our influence in a way that we ought to, right? And, and, I, and you know, like I think on this one, Jody and Bishop are probably going to say we ought to use more diplomacy, and I agree. We need more diplomacy, right? But diplomacy only works across the globe, when it's backed by a credible threat of the use of force. And that credible threat of the use of force um, in this administration is not real, and nor was it ever real um, in the Obama administration. So for 12 years, America has been viewed as inveterate when it comes to international relations because we don't, we don't back ourselves with the real credible threat of the use of force because we keep talking about ending endless wars and getting out from abroad and focusing at home. And look, there's important, it's important to focus at home, but we will pay the price if we do not fight our enemies abroad and allow them to come here instead. And again, I, I really I've now a, pivoted from, from Greece and Turkey yeah, to a broader point. I, I, have a, I, a,
0: <laughs> yeah, I
1: have an entirely but, different perspective on this, which is that this might, I mean, not that the U.S. doesn't need to be engaged on this issue, but you can't actually solve issues that people don't want to have solved. In other words, for me, Turkey's never actually wanted to solve its problems with Greece and Cyprus. Like, it's never had a real Interest in taking care of that issue. In fact, they use that issue. Uh, they use that issue domestically. That would be my first point. And the second point is we have a larger problem with Erdogan, right? Like not only is he buying f-400s from Russia, he's sending weapons into into Gaza, in Azerbaijan, right? He's he's acting up in a variety of spaces that are of increasing concern to us. So that is something we're going to have to wrap our heads around. Uh, regardless of who's president but just on the Greece-Turkey thing like I I really do think that Turkey has never had a strong interest in resolving that conflict and you can't make people solve things that they don't want to solve.
0: All right so let's let's migrate a little bit from Greece-Turkey to Russia-Turkey. You've got Russian forces and Turkish forces opposing each other in Armenia, Azerbaijan, in Syria, in Libya, you know kind of across the region those two rising powers are coming into increasing conflict. And it seems to be the, the policy of this administration, while there's been some attempts at diplomacy, to kind of let those two powers go after each other a little bit more than maybe the US normally would have done. Bishop, do you, do you think a Joe Biden administration would take a different approach? Because, you know, with both Russia and Turkey, uh, granted, Turkey's an ally. We're both in NATO. Russia is more of a global power. we have got a complicated relationship with them, mostly negative. On the other hand, we cooperate in civilian space efforts. Uh, how, do, how do you approach that dynamic differently kind of across the region, or do you approach it differently?
3: We could have a whole separate discussion on uh, our civilian space efforts and how convoluted those are. But, uh, well, I mean, the, the major thing you would see, I would imagine, coming out of a Biden administration is, a, 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 I don't want to use the term pivot, because I think it's probably overused, but you'll see a, a Russia pivot, you'll you'll see an adjustment in the way that we handle uh, Russia, because right now we're inviting them literally into the White House, we're not doing anything. So I, I think that's uh, the first major step i think you're also going to see to some degree a return to at the very least to the idea of smart power and I think that's something that Jamil to some degree was was hitting around the edges on but right now we have no diplomacy whatsoever uh in our in our nation's foreign policy, so if you're going to have uh, that you need the tip of the spear you need to have that the first the discussions from a, a diplomatic stance before you even begin talking about what threats of kinetic uh activity or intervention you could potentially have i don't think it's it's going to be in the interest of uh of a Biden administration or their desire to go and become uh to in, to intervene uh from a a military perspective in uh in everything we do i think you'll You'll see us watch very closely, but you may see us become uh, a trusted uh, a broker to some degree, and we'll try to do what we can to, to de-escalate uh, tensions, but it, we will begin from a diplomatic perspective, and that's something that this nation has lacked now uh, for the past four years, for sure.
0: All right, another question from the audience uh, is about multilateral institutions. Of course, the administration, the Trump administration pulled out of the World Health Organization in the middle of a pandemic. A lot of people thought that wasn't a great idea. Uh, it's very likely Joe Biden will, if he wins, one of the first things he'll do is get back into the WHO. But there is kind of this lingering issue that perhaps the WHO didn't conduct itself in the in the in a manner in reaction to uh, the virus coming out of Wuhan that was really in our interest. Like there there could have been a better multilateral response. So so Jody Bishop Jamil anyone can weigh in here. How do we think the Biden administration, aside from rejoining things and asserting that those things are good, how does a Biden administration perhaps reform multilateral institutions or or promote reform in a way that will lead to our interests and values being better represented there?
3: Well, two two quick things and now everyone else. To, I... You have to be within, I think, uh, of membership to a lot of these parties if you're going to work from within and actually s- seek uh, comprehensive reform. So just by stepping away and saying you're not going to participate participate anymore, uh, it, it kind of creates a, a, a problem there. And then, uh, again, it goes back to what we want our role internationally to be. If we're going to, uh, help, uh, globally help our, our allies work through some of these different problems, then we need to set an example in the way, in the, the tone that we set in the dialogue and the, in the, uh, uh, the type of language that we use, and we've been, not only did we step away from the WHO, we've then begun to call it the, the China virus, and, and, and very xenophobic language around the entire situation that only uh, looked to isolate us more.
1: So I, I love this question, last because I remember the days, many, many administrations, where we used to play the multilateral game, Right. So I think one of the things that multiple administrations have done is really step back from leadership in multilateral institutions. And that's really problematic. I understand why. Like they're not always very satisfying places to be. Right. Your progress, you know, at the U.N. or in an in in an iffy is like it's marginal, like it's incremental. You know, these are steps that you take over over a long period of time, like it's painful and tedious. To make progress in some of these institutions, and so we ceased playing the game uh, some years ago. The problem was is that other people didn't, right? Notably, the Russians and the Chinese and other authoritarian states actually saw us receding, and they stepped in such that you now have authoritarian states leading initiatives uh, at the UN and trying to reset the rules, you know, say at the U.S. at the Human Rights Council for, you know, what constitutes interventionist activity, right? So we're redefining how these organizations work and what rules they work by, and that's really problematic. So I am enthused by the idea that we understand this this now and that there is an opportunity for us to step back in. I want to be clear, though, it's going to take a little bit of time, right? Like the steps that these states took, like China took, they took them over a period of time to pre-position their diplomats into these committees and councils. Right, so that they can move their way up slowly over a period of time and now we're gonna we're gonna have to do that again ourselves right but it's really critical. I think this idea that you just all oh, we'll will just pull out and if institutions don't matter it's just silly. There is not another place where everybody comes together to talk and you might find it painful, and you might find it tedious, which it is, but like the alternatives are, are, are even worse
2: look i'm not going to disagree with with all that i'll just say this which is at some point if you're going to reform an organization sometimes you have to walk away to reform it sometimes you have to rebuild it uh, from the beginning right and and maybe that wasn't the right thing to do on the who and maybe that's not the right institution Um, But at some point, you know, holding back and withdrawing money and the like, that stuff matters. And at some point, you've got to, again, like the credible threat of the use of force, if the threat to walk away isn't there, or you don't actually do it, it's not actually effective. And so you've got to be willing to cut funds, you've got to be willing to limit funds, you got to be willing to walk away if need be. And maybe this wasn't the place to do it. But until we're viewed as credible on that front, we're not going to have real influence modifying behavior. And frankly, the U.N. has been a huge problem for a while. It's not just the WHO. There are a lot of U.N. institutions. Jody, you know all about the Human Rights Council, which is a joke and an embarrassment, um, you know, and been led by some of the world's worst uh, human rights violators? Um, You know, I mean, there are a lot of problems with the U.N., um, and so, so taking a stiff wire brush to it um, is not a bad thing. The question is just when and how and how much. And, and maybe the walking right. away from the WHO in the middle of a global yeah. pandemic wasn't the smartest move.
1: That, but this, these aren't your teenagers, right? Like, it's not like you're stepping away. This would be like if you have teenagers and you're annoyed with them, asking somebody else to parent them, right? Like, that's not really a choice to, like, literally just step away and do nothing. Because what actually happens is that China or Russia or others step in. It's not as if people learn the lessons that the way that you, you want them to.
3: If we, if we are not at the table, someone else will step in and uh, fill that vacuum. It's a power vacuum. I, I, I don't doubt that.
2: I don't doubt that. I'm just saying at some point, you got to be able to, we got to be willing to walk away if it's not working for you, right? And the question is, when do you do that? And how often do you do it? And how credible are you in threatening to do that? But surely you don't believe that we should always stay in the room at all times and all conversations, even when it's clearly not going to work for us.
1: Listen, you know what, American, if you're going to be the leader, you don't get to just walk up and stand up and storm out of the room. It doesn't work that way. Like, you've got to stand there, you've got to make it through the difficult conversations, and you've got to find the alliances and, 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 and lead, right? And it's you, just right.
3: hard. You don't want right. to choose just when just you're going to be hard. the leader and when you're not going to be the leader. Like, either you're the leader or you're not.
0: All right, let's, uh, let's do one last question. This is an audience question. Everyone gets a quick response, Jamil, quick. Uh, and, then, and then we'll wrap this thing up. So the Trump administration has increasingly relied on sanctions, unilateral sanctions to carry out its policies. You're, we're seeing it in Central America, in Venezuela, Russia, China. The response to the issue with the Uyghur Muslims we talked about earlier was direct sanctions from the administration. They're, they're over-relying on, the, on sanctions as a tool how would a Joe Biden handle sanctions policy? Let's go fast. Who wants to go first?
2: I would say the same, frankly, because it's the same, it's the same policy the Obama administration had. And it comes from an unwillingness to use the military arm of power. Obama had it, uh, Trump has it. And I worry that Joe Biden will have it. I hope, I hope he won't. I hope he'll be willing to use the military uh, instrument of power when appropriate, which is not all the time, I get it, right? But sanctions right mm-hmm. now is the only tool in toolkit. It hasn't for 12 years, that's a mistake.
3: I'll say I'll only add that uh, I think a Joe Biden um, administration will probably uh, levy them uh, more accurately and evenly. For instance, with uh, Saudi Arabia, (laughs) uh, and and uh, what we saw there, and uh, uh, the situation with a Washington Post journalist with uh, Jamal Khashoggi, Khashoggi, excuse me. Um, That's my only uh, main concern. I think that if they're going to utilize them, they're going to leverage them. They're going to do it uh, evenly and appropriately, and, and in a way that is in the best interest of the country and not. Uh, one particular uh, person or group of people. Sure.
1: I, I think we've gotten better at sanctions over the years as opposed to kind of like broad-based country sanctions. We now have sanctions for finance on corruption, the global Magnitsky sanctions that I'm fond of talking about that I think are more more targeted and frankly more effective. I think, uh, I think those continue, but the difference with the Biden administration is maybe we're able to bring other people along, um, along with us and use those sanctions and to Bishop's point, uh, yeah, I, I think they'll be more consistent, right? It's hard, to, um, it's hard to be sanctioning people if you're not consistent in your application.
0: I'd like, uh, for what it's worth, I'd like to see us be more proactive uh, with other kinds of programs, foreign assistance programs, instead of punishing evildoers. Instead, we should be enhancing and bolstering uh, the positive voices in societies. We should be spending a little more money Uh, helping them do the right thing in their home country rather than trying to limit things economically. It has a limited utility. It often doesn't work or it has unintended uh, consequences that we don't really like either. Thank you for joining us for this presentation from the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. Also, be sure to follow us on Twitter at MasonNatSec. If you like what we are doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing and Grant Haver for production assistance.